who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Today, we are delighted to welcome Yannick Malling to ETL. Yannick Malling is the co-founder and co-CEO of public.com, an investing social network where members can own fractional shares of stocks and ETFs. They can follow popular creators, share ideas within the community of investors. Now, prior to public, Malling was co-founder and CEO of Tradable, a company that reinvented the online trading platform through a unified API, API platform that uh, allowed developers to build financial apps connected to a global network of brokerages. He was on the founding team and served as head of product at CFH Group, and he began his career at Saxo Bank, the original online trading service in Europe. He's got tons of experience in this space. Yannick has been named a global shaper by the World Economic Forum, and he was selected as a leader of tomorrow by the St. Gallian Symposium, the world's leading initiative for intergenerational debates on economic, political, and social developments. Yannick, what haven't you done? And welcome to ETL. <laughs> hey, thanks, Toby. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really awesome to be here. Um, honestly, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to this. Well, you've got an extraordinary career and I and your story is just so epic. And I know all the students are incredibly excited to hear your journey. So let's get right into it. So let's talk a little bit about career and building public. But what's really interesting about your business is that it's both a social media app and it's a brokerage service. And uh, you've been able to combine that into really interesting user experience. But let's start on the brokerage side of things now. I imagine one of the central challenges of building something like public is the degree to which you need to think about regulation and not just customers and revenue, right? So can you talk a little bit about some of the bigger, you know, kind of uh, systemic hurdles you had to jump through as you built a public's trading service? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're right. Public is a fully regulated uh, broker dealer nationwide um, in the U.S. And I think one of the one of the best ways to kind of summarize it is the this whole notion that um, a lot of people have preached, a lot of people have sort of uh, been taught directly or indirectly uh, for various of the content of you know, move fast and break things. Right, that's sort of been a, a Silicon Valley mantra for for many years. And I think more than anything, really, what operating a highly regulated industry means is that you cannot just always follow those sort of standard startup um, rules, if you will. Um, because at the end of the day, um, you know, you're dealing with people's money. It's, it's, it's a fairly sort of highly, highly regulated, um, industry. And I think in a different way than people might um, expect from something like an Uber or an Airbnb that also had some regulatory challenges. And so what that ultimately means is, um, everything can't always happen as, as quickly as you want it to be. There is, uh, there is another very important stakeholder on the table in most of the decisions that you make and it's not the, the the usual just you know you have sort of your customers or your VCs your employees but there's also a, a, a regulator that I think um, especially these are becoming increasingly um, important um, for the industry um, overall I think that being said and, and so that's probably the number one thing right I think um, the interesting thing about regulation is it does present a high barrier of entry and I think that's why for many years that you didn't also see maybe a lot of 
startups up until sort of the rise of fintech, maybe, you know, call it um, half a decade to a decade ago. But finance was one of the the last large industries to really um, sort of be disrupted for like a better word by various forms of technology startups. And um, and I think as a result of that, you know, um, consumers' expectations may also be a little bit lower because most sort of, uh, because technology hasn't been around the finance industry um, as deeply as it's integrated uh, into it today for, for several decades. Um, and so that's maybe the one, one of the few sort of, um, positives that that you're able to actually create it, it's a longer draw it's more regulated but you can create some really magical experiences um in and around money once you sort of push through that yeah that's an interesting point i spent some time both at solar city and tesla and i know working with elon especially on the uh, the solar side massive regulation you're dealing with utilities and um huge amounts of um friction and but being able to unlock yeah. that there's a tremendous amount of value for those that have the vision and the experience and you've done an amazing job in that area so i think as you as as uh kind of starting off with that first question but can you talk about like your background and what gave you both the interest and the courage to take on such a, a huge challenge of creating something as ambitious as public because there's nothing out there like it Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, arguably, like like you said, I, I actually have been you know around this industry for a long time. I, I sort of say I I've been in fintech maybe ten <laughs> years before it was really called fintech. Um, so personally, I, I grew up in Copenhagen in Denmark um, and took a very early interest uh, in design um, and sort of did, did did some early web development as well. But uh, I leaned more to the the Photoshop and I mean, God, this was like when. Macromedia Flash was all the rage. Oh yeah! <laughs> so that was actually what I started designing in um, that in Photoshop. Um, but then early on in my career, um, got into this company called Saxo Bank, which is uh, very well known in in, in kind of Europe, uh, a little bit less so in, in the US because they, they never really operated that much here. But got to join there early. I think I was like employing about three hundred or something, and that was. That was a real rocket ship. Like we, I think, after being there for uh, so I joined there when I was seventeen years old. So it was a it was a kind of interesting position, and I think they only took me in because I knew how to code a little bit and could design and whatnot, and um, so I was able to carve out a nice kind of interesting role for myself in that company. Um, but inside, I think twelve eighteen months or something, we were over a thousand employees, and so that was a really uh, interesting scaling experience. That was also very global because it was around Europe and, and Asia for the most part. Um, and that's that's really how I kind of came into the industry. So it was not this thing that I grew up necessarily uh, always wanting to get into it. I kind of stumbled into it a little bit, um, but not, but then after that, I, I I think that's where maybe I, I caught the bug around the financial system and and just like it's such a vast thing and 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 it's it's really one of the areas where you can truly be a lifelong learner, right? Um, because it's just such a massive system, and um, even now. 15 years later, you know, I'm still learning stuff every day, even around how uh, markets really work, how they should operate, et cetera. Um, and so did that, then a bunch of us actually left, started another company. That was actually in, in 07. Um, so that was right, right before the financial crisis, we decided to start a financial uh, technology company, which <laughs> obviously was an interesting timing. Uh, and we actually ended up building something entirely different than what we set out to build, but in the wake of the financial crisis, we're able to build sort of a, a B2B marketplace business, uh, facilitating liquidity over API between the big banks in London and smaller and medium-sized financial institutions around uh, Europe and the Middle East. 
And so that was something where I really got a very deep understanding of how the markets actually kind of operated, um, even even among sort of the big banks and whatnot. Um, and, and that was also where I sort of really started um, with the head of product role, obviously building out and more, I'll say, being responsible for building out a much more sophisticated uh, tech platform um, in around the financial markets. Um, and so ultimately that company was acquired in 2016. That's when I moved to the US. I was living in London at the time. And um, then uh, a, a year, 18 months later, I, I kind of um, began to, to start what is, now, what is now public. Yeah, so two follow-up questions to that. <clears throat> One that's, that's really blatantly obvious is that you've, you've had this unique ability to really see where problems are. Um, is that something that you developed over time? Was that something early in career? And combining that with uh, this uh, intellectual curiosity about design. So did you go to school? I know Stanford's got an amazing design and D school uh, to take up Photoshop and get learning. So those two aspects, are like recognizing where real problems existed and then you know, kind of design and prototyping, where'd that come from? Yeah, I would say I got my design degree on youtube.com. Um, basically just, you know, doing... Honestly, in the beginning of just doing tutorials, I was really fascinated with a bunch of graphic design, which is how most designers work. Um, and this was pre-mobile, right? And so then, you know, with um, Macromedia Flash as well. Um, and then I think I remember, um, I remember actually, I think it was Evan Spiegel said this in a quote of like, you sort of, I was, I was too young to really catch the dot-com wave, right? I was probably 12, 13 years old when that happened. So... So I was I was a little bit too young, but that was actually around around the time that I started doing some design and development for the web. Um, and then after uh, after two thousand one and, and the bust, I remember feeling a little bit like oh, you know, sort of you kind of missed the window from a generational perspective. But then with the emergence of mobile, I remember um, just feeling incredibly fortunate because you could see early on that that was going to be something different entirely. And what I think was interesting about mobile is that um, design suddenly had to become more human. And there was the potential to, I mean, the, the internet in those early days was still a lot of early adopters and whatnot, right? And I think just when you started to realize that everybody was going to rock around with a computer in their pocket, you started to think a little bit differently about how you can solve problems, um, which I think in many ways public is a direct manifestation of because we always talked about the problem that we're solving being much more a psychological one than anything else of like most people historically feeling like the, the stock market has not really been for them. That's sort of where the irony of the name public comes in, because it turns out the, the stock market was actually designed for the public. That's why they're called the public markets. Um, and so, but, you know, when you can start to use technology to really solve even like psychological problems, I think that's very fascinating because I think the early technology boom saw it being a little bit more solving some business model issues and like, you know, being able to disrupt a bunch of stuff around uh, how you distribute products, how you sort of make money on things, et cetera. Um, and I feel, I really see public as a, a company that's solving a much more sort of human um, problem, which has much more to do with how people actually feel. Um, and, and you know, the UX and the address, obviously, and the community itself within public is a massive part of solving that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. <clears throat> well, to that end, I know there's a lot of bias here in Silicon Valley from venture capital firms that, you know, want the CEO or that other core co-founder to be highly, highly technical. And I really find it fascinating that like, uh, you're not an, you know, hardcore engineer by study or training, you study finance, you Definitely study management, not. you study economics. And 
your career focused really on the product side of things rather than the engineering side. But for those students out there coming from a similar background, can you speak a little bit about the sorts of skills and advantages someone like yourself can bring to a tech startup, that magic? Yeah, again, I think that um, the sort of what you're referencing there was maybe also a little bit of a generational thing at a time where uh, engineering talent was really, really scarce. And so in order to actually build a startup from the ground up, you can really take on a bunch of cost up front. And so it becomes very handy when one of the two co-founders can actually just throw together the prototype, right? I think we now live at a time with the rise of like no code tools and, and even with things like, you know, Envision that frankly, has been a product that you could use to put together an MVP as a designer and go out of the real world and test it with people and, 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 you know, get a lot of the answers that you're kind of looking for at that stage. And, and so I definitely think it's, it's shifting. I will say, I do think that it's always incredibly handy to have a, have an actual like understanding architecture. Um, and so I'm not someone who obviously uh, write codes. I, I never wrote a single line of code in this company, but I have always been involved in the architectural decisions because if you can sort of understand, like those are the ones that might sort of either open up avenues for you down the line to quickly execute upon or vice versa, you can block yourself out of stuff because you're kind of moving in the wrong direction. And so basically the ability to synchronize your product roadmap and product vision um, with sort of the, the architecture of your systems, I think is, is actually really important because that's ultimately what allows you to um, move fast and, and not break things. And, and that's something which is in our industry obviously has been pretty, pretty important. And, and, and that I think has been very paramount to, to our, um, any sort of success we've had today. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Very fascinating. Um, one of the things I'm curious to know, I know many, many EZL speakers um, talk about the massive pivots and the journey of their startup, but I'm curious to know from your original vision, is it exactly how you had envisioned it? Or did you take some twists and turns and pivots along the way? And could you speak a little bit about that initial idea to where you are today? Yeah, I don't. So um, there was a couple of things. I think largely the problem that we wanted to solve remained the same, but the ways you go about solving it tends to have different faces to it, right? Also, you start to, you know, it's always nice to dream big at the at the outset, but then, you know, uh, you really got to sit down and map stuff out. And then it's like, okay, you got to scope a lot of things out of the MVP and things of that nature. But um, the original thesis was always about creating, you know, making the markets more approachable, not just making them more accessible. Um, and those are two words that sound similar, but are actually wildly different. And so part of making the markets more approachable had more to do with like breaking down that psychological barrier of people feeling like the markets were not for them. Um, and that that is a problem that had less to do with like commissions and fees and more to do with like what is the experience in and around the market. So a lot of people historically have been intimidated by, by it. We did a lot of user research up front where a lot of people were like, um, you know, yeah, stock market's not really for me right now. I think, you know, when am I late 30s, I might start um, and like that's in, in the markets, which is all about compounding at the end of the day, that's sort of exactly the problem. Um, and so we, we kind of realized that there was this misconception about what the stock markets really was. I think also stemming from the fact that the culture around it has always been sort of a very defined culture. You know, you think about stock trading, your mind goes to Wolf of Wall Street memes. It's a very sort of white male dominated activity. It's a little bit, you know, the communities that have always existed around have always been very short term focused. and. 
I think we wanted to create something very different from that, which was more about real investing culture and actually making people you know, solid long-term investors and truly building their financial literacy as well as growing their portfolios over time. Um, and I, I do remember, though, that we actually started with that thesis. And so that's how the whole social thesis came into play of like, how can you build a community that it educates itself? Um, and I think in, in some of the beta versions, we, we had the social features, but we didn't have um, the ability to own fractional share share. And that was like a big unlock for us. I remember where, you know, I think we, um, we saw a lot that people really liked the promise of what we had built um with the social features and whatnot but they weren't that useful for them because you were looking at people that maybe owned amazon stock and you were sitting yourself there and like couldn't even afford a single share of amazon because it was trading at you know 1500 bucks uh per share at the time and so i remember we sort of had to make the little bit tough decision to do like go way back and be like okay we're not just gonna actually put this out we're solving half the problem now but we've got to do some really deep innovative work in and around how you actually transact in stocks to solve that. And at this time, fractional shares was not a thing that really existed um, as sort of, you couldn't go into a brokerage and just buy real-time fractional shares. Um, and so we kind of have to invent that up from the ground up. And I think that took another, you know, six to nine months or something. And, and that required a lot of first principles thinking and a lot of sort of really rethinking how things are done. But I think where we ended up was exactly with the sense of like, once you put those two concepts together, it became the great unlock and, and the whole sort of flywheel within the app and whatnot started really kicking into gear in a, in a very different way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, and to that end, uh, we're talking about customers and feedback and consumer behavior and being able to get insights into that, but I know that you recently welcomed your 1 millionth user, so congratulations on that. But so now you have a lot of consumer behavior to analyze. So can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and strategy in terms of like, how you observe customer behavior and allowing that to impact your product roadmap. I guess like with most product roadmaps, you have requests for way more features than you have engineers and how to prioritize that. And are there any particular clear examples of customer behaviors that are driving product innovation at public and how's that process work there? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a general thing. Um, and honestly, this has come in very handy during, during quarantine of when you're building community led products, you know, where the community is sort of at the center and actually a massive, if not the biggest part of the value proposition that you offer. Um, there's a lot of challenges with that. I will say, we always say internally, like um, everyone can build social features, but it's freaking hard to build community. It's two very different things. Um, but when you are building community products, there are some advantages, right? So for instance, the, you know, you don't just see the data kind of quantitatively, but um, immediately when you put new new things out into the app, even sometimes the smallest updates, right? People pick up on them and you can see them conversing around them within the community and you sort of see how they're adopting them in a very different way because everything is kind of very transparent and, you, and, and the users see how other people are adopting those as well. And so that adds a very interesting layer, I think, to sort of the product feedback loop that, um, you know, single player apps or kind of like, uh, non-community-led products really don't have. And I think it's it's often the emotional kind of drivers that help you understand really how people feel and about your product and, and how they use your product. And I think that, um, especially in the finance world, historically, there's been, uh, which sort of I've studied um, for most of my life, like there's always been the tendency to like operate under the assumption that everybody's completely rational. And that's just not true. In fact, the opposite is true. Most people are just human beings with 
that are very emotionally kind of driven. And so I think once you realize that and accept that, then you can start to really use that as a strength in sort of building community, which then leads to sort of this super interesting kind of product feedback flow where, um, you know, you get a lot of it from the users directly as you would in any other company, but you see how people are talking amongst each other within the community um, around around kind of new features that, that you put out. I think that's been very handy at a time like quarantine where you can't go down to the coffee shop and do over the shoulder kind of look. It's kind of like the digital way of doing over the shoulder, over the shoulder kind of look testing and whatnot. And obviously that's been something that many startups in the past, um, you know, now 15 months have been unable to do. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. At STVP, um, we're incredibly passionate about exploring how entrepreneurs can build values and ethics and principles uh, into their ventures. It's a super hot topic. It's brought up every quarter uh, during my classes. But at Public, you've created a list of 10 principles um, to guide your team. Um, can you give us a few examples of your company principles and talk about why and how you created this list of principles and the value that it's creating for your employees and your stakeholders and ultimately your brand. Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, we are, me and life, my, 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 we're huge believers in, in principles. I think we see them a little bit differently than, 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 than others maybe in that we actually see them more as tools than values. Right. And I think it's easy to dismiss these things as sort of like motivation, motivational posters that hang around the office um but we've really approached them as tools and so we've created this system called public principles which is really a you can kind of see it as a little bit like rules of engagement of like how the company wants people to act and i think what's very interesting is that i mean i think we actually this is one of the first thing we did when we started to build a company we were like hey i think both being sort of second time founders here we sort of had you know been through some things of like just I think for the first time, we just jumped both into product, the two of us, and, and then only later through the journey, you realize building a product is one-tenth of building a company, and there's many other things that kind of go into it. Um, and so we really wanted to get it right from the outset this time. And so really, it was just this notion of, hey, building a company. So at the end of the day, it's the product of making millions of decisions. The more um, consistency you can have between those decisions, I think, um, will correlate to how successful you are. And so really. Um, but you don't want to make all the decisions yourself. You, it does nothing. Like you cannot make millions of decisions over even a decade, right? It's just um, not going to happen. So the principles were designed to give people sort of a framework for how to make those decisions and, and how to operate within the company. Um, and so an example, uh, principle one is uh, honesty kills bullshit. Uh, sorry for, you know, excuse my French, but uh, that's, <laughs> um, and like, that's a principle that really comes up every day. And it's been something that when you're growing a company really quickly, I mean, to give you an idea, I think we were like 20 people when lockdown hit, now we're over a hundred. So uh, we've definitely had some interesting scaling challenges as well, but I think by and large, the principles have actually helped us get through that in many ways. Um, and so when you're sort of meeting someone that you never met for the, uh, before and like being really honest with people can be kind of difficult, like it's not, necessarily something that comes easy to most people um, and so really these principles serve to give people the toolkit to just be honest right so the way people will say things like hey quick principle one i think x y and c and in that moment it's a little bit like you know that i'm not trying to be a jerk right now i'm actually not trying to sort of like um I i'm just trying to act in the way the company wants me to act um which at this moment means just being honest about something um, a lot of the principles go hand in hand principle two is 
feedback comes from a place of care. So I think, you know, those two principles, for instance, is an interesting duo and a very powerful one, um, I would add. Um, and now that also just serves to keep in mind what, what feedback actually is. Because a lot of people, I think it, it, the definition is suggestions for improvement, but a lot of people just take a, a vague translation to that and, and use it as an excuse to kind of say anything, I think. And so, um, and so as you go down the list, like there are more and more principles that really are tools that you can drop in conversation on Slack, in meetings, et cetera, that sort of helps you, helps other people on the receiving end as well, really understand where you're coming from um, when you're saying those things. And it's a living living document. It's, uh, it's, it's in its third version already. And so we actually have um, a quarterly review of these things and, and try to sort of keep it up to speed as, as, as the company um, grows and evolves. Yeah, it sounds like you guys really live by those. A follow-up question to that. Uh, I've seen a lot of companies that have two sets of principles. One set of principles for uh, 90% of the company and another set of principles for the rock stars. Have you had a situation where you've had, you know, an A player that um, violated a principle and you had to let that person go? Uh, we have not. Um, but I think, I, I, I think to, to your point, the reason people end up there, because I've, I, I've seen it as well. And I, I think the reason people end up there is because they have this idea that the principles have to be timeless and set in stone. And once you accept that that's just not the case and that you can actually version them and update them, um, then they become much, then they sort of become more universally applicable for the entire company at any point in time. And they basically just scale better with the company. Um, and so um, I think that's been a reason why that there's been one reason why that haven't happened. Um, we take it very seriously, literally on employees' first day. We sit down, both my, my, my co-CEO and I, and we spend an hour just running through every principles, talking through them anecdotally, how we think about them, why we put them in there, et cetera. And I also think that ensures that people approach them from the outset um, in a consistent manner. Yeah. Well, I think you've done a, a great job. So let's, you know, so we take the principles and let's, pivot to like another really important business decision that you make is lots of times an economic model will drive either lack of transparency or um, bad behavior at the end of the day. So we had Robin Hood co-founder, CEO, Vlad ETL back here in February. And right after the GameStop situation blew up, and at that time, a rather very obscure mechanism called payment for order flow suddenly jumped into national headlines, right? But around that time, you released a statement saying that public was ending payment uh, for order flow. So that was a, a big decision on your part. And obviously there's probably a significant amount of revenue implications to that, but can you explain that decision in light of uh, these company principles we just talked about? Yeah, definitely. So to uh, maybe give a, a quick primer payment for order flow or PFO for short is a practice by which brokerages get compensated from routing customers orders to be filled by third-party market makers instead of at an exchange, um, which is, I think most people, when they think about the stock market, they would just assume that your order goes to the exchange, right? The stock exchange. Um, and uh, in, in the vast majority of the retail investing world, that's actually not the case. Now, then in February, to your point, we decided to, um, to actually end payment for order flow um, and um, remove the sort of receiving um, payment for order flow from market makers from our business model. Um, and then we rolled out um, a feature called tipping, which is basically sort of an optional way that people can leave a tip on a trade to public that offsets the cost of clearing instead. I think at the end of the day, so first of all, the reason we made the decision um, had more to do with what kind of company we really want to build. Oftentimes, 
companies over time um, become very beholden uh, to their business model more than anything over time, especially as they sort of get closer to actually IPOing themselves, et cetera. And we were kind of looking at this like if, you know, if you're relying on payment order flow to be your main kind of revenue stream, um, we think you end up building something that might have misaligned incentives with your customers, at least the way we think about building this kind of company, right? We really, um, we, you know, we don't just care about access. We actually care about, you know, making people better investors. We really want to ensure that they grow, um, you know, the, the, their portfolios as well as their financial literacy. And I think, um, payment for offer didn't really sit well with that kind of model. Um, because at the end of the day, you will make more if your users trade more and just to have users trade more is not always correlated and quite often the opposite. In fact, with actually growing people's portfolios and their accounts, because most people that day trade historically lose money. It also goes to things like we don't offer products like margin trading and options trading. Um, and those are sort of incredibly lucrative if you uh, have payment for overflow as a business model. Um, and so I think for us, it just came down to looking at the incentives between us and our customers. And we want it to be entirely beholden to our customers, not to third party market makers. Um, and that that ultimately is, is what drove that decision. Yeah, well, I applaud that effort because I know also been a former CEO, the pressure you get from your board. Um, and driving growth of the company and to make a decision like that takes a lot of courage and will. And I think really, really speaks to you as being a principal leader in your team. And I, I just really applaud the, the courage of you guys because that, that was a bit, that's a big step. It, it, it was. I will say, though, that it, it all depends on how you look at it, because I think, um, you know, we look at this company as what kind of revenue profile that we want to build right we would like to build something where we have a little bit more diversification of revenue rather than being reliant on like i said options trading margin trading and ultimately just have that all sort of hit this one revenue lever and then i think we were early enough in our lifetime that that we weren't beholden to it um in the same way as 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 many other folks are and so i think for us it truly was the sort of end diagram overlapping between do we believe it's the right thing to do? Yes, it works better with our mission and our roadmap and everything that we're trying to accomplish. But we actually think long-term, it's gonna be a better business decision for us as well. If you sort of A-B test the two parallel realities of us just continuing with PFOF um, versus what we're gonna do now, like we truly believe that's gonna lead to a much stronger business um, overall. And so it's at the end of the day, um, like, with the markets, by the way, quite often, all a matter of your perspective as far as time. Are you looking at things a little bit more short term, medium term, or just like very long term, right? Um, and I think this was just a, a decision where we are in a position to think really long term about this stuff. Um, whereas obviously incumbents and many others are necessarily not in, in that position. Yeah. Well, I also, I know we're, we're, we're not going to dive into that in this talk, but that does speak a lot to how thoughtful you were and looking at your cap table and especially in your board of directors, because I've been on a lot of boards and quite the opposite is true where they just want revenue and growth and don't have that long-term view. So um, everything from the service that you built and um, the revenue that you generate and to have that kind of long-term view just says a lot that you, you picked your investors really wisely and folks that are in it for the long haul. So I really commend you on that. Um, now, because you're a social media company as well as a brokerage firm, um, I'm sure you guys spend a lot of time thinking about uh, content moderation. Uh, we've seen that in space, especially with the last 
um, you know, political uh, cycle here in the United States. But at a high level, like how do you approach enforcing or encouraging standards of behavior that work for your community in, in a way that you envision it? Yeah. So before I sort of get into some of the some of the tactical stuff, I think the one of the most interesting things that we've done with public, I think, um, is by way of merging a brokerage, um, where when you run a brokerage, you open a brokerage account, we actually need to verify your identity, right? That's like standard KYC, know your customer. Um, and so by merging that with a social platform, um, we actually have arrived at what might now be the most verified social network in 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 the history of social networks in that every single member is actually verified. So in order to participate in the community, we we need to have identif- uh, verified your identity. And that's been such an interesting social experiment in and of itself, um, Toby, because I think it's like, historically the internet has always like, um, been mostly centered around anonymity, right? In the early days and now later with the crypto movement or whatnot, and we've sort of made a 180 on that and been like, well, we're going to operate a social network where nobody's anonymous. We there, and, and so therefore there are no bots. There are no sort of like, um, you know, everyone is a, is a real person. And that just means that the behavior on the app is incredible. And within the community is very, very different um, than what you sort of see from other social networks historically. And I've had, I've had, I've had the privilege to talk to some of the leaders of those kind of big social companies and 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 I think they've been also pretty fascinated with it because it's it's something that you know they're not in in a position to do obviously right um, historically it's only people with the blue check mark that has that that has their identity be verified and and those tend to not really cause the issue when you're talking about content moderation on those platforms and so just by having that mechanism in place we've dramatically lifted the bar as far as the quality of the community, which has been also very important just because it's very, like when you're having a community around finance and investing, you know, it, it really is a quality of a quantity game as far as the, the user-generated content that exists on the app. And like, we always say that the community is really our way to sort of educate people at scale because it's a community that educates itself. And so rather than us, you know, trying to run a publishing house and, 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 and running education company on, on top of that, we think it's much more powerful if you have a diverse community to also have diversity of thought within, you know, the things that you kind of um, like how people approach investing, et cetera. And so I think at, at the most foundational level, that's been, that's been super fascinating um, to see because it just raises the baseline quality of the conversations and, and the civility in the community. It makes it much more humane. We even talked about the GameStop incident, right? Like there was a lot of people coming in from a certain forum on Reddit that where, where everybody actually are anonymous, <laughs> but when those users kind of trickle into public, they we've seen them very much conforming their behavior to the culture that already exists in the community. And, yeah. and I think that's a very kind of human thing. I know that um, Steve, the Red founder talks about this as well, but like, you know, you will act differently at a dinner with your in-laws than you do um, with sort of when you're hanging out with your friends. Right. And, and I think the same is sort of true for communities. You, you sort of tend to pick up on, on the vibe in that community and then conform your behavior to that a little bit. And so, when we see, especially in those days where a lot of, um, you know, Wall Street best people came in, you know, um, on Reddit, they might have a, a, you know, a cartoon for a profile picture, a username with a bunch of swear words in there, right? On public, they have a real profile picture with their dog or their significant other, right? They have a real name and the bio might have some 
some diamond and rocket emojis, uh, but but it's it's still presenting a much more uh, human side of themselves, uh, which again just like adds to the to the culture of the community and and and, and reinforces what it's really about. Um, so. In addition to that, we obviously have a bunch of tactical things, right? There's actually a lot of interesting things that you can do. Um, like there are many ways you can scale content moderation, especially when you're maybe sort of within the written format and you don't have that much like live live content happening. Live content is incredibly tough to to kind of scale content moderation for, but um, but for a lot of the written stuff, you can sort of set up bots that crawl stuff. We have um, a lot of things that sort of run things through models in real time and alert our community members and things of that nature when there are things that they might want to kind of look into. And so long story short, there's actually a lot of ways that you can scale that, um, mostly with code as well now and not just with actually uh, people, but obviously we also do have a community and a customer service team that is relatively to our size, um, a, a relatively large uh, group within the company. Yeah, very cool. Well, we got a bunch of questions queuing up from our students that are anxious to jump into the fray here. So let me start with our first one. And the question is, what do you say to people who blame retail investors or the behavior of micro investors for the volatility of the public market? I know you touched a little bit upon that, but what's your overall take on that? Oh, man, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'll try to give a short answer. We could talk about that for hours, frankly. So, um, you know, I think if, if by micro investors you're referring to people that invest with fractional shares, um, they tend to be a smaller part of the market, obviously, because you're not actually even buying full shares. A lot of the volatility um, from the retail side of it tends to actually come from margin trading, which is the ability to basically take a loan to sort of boost your trades. And so, again, the larger the trades amounts are, the more it adds to the volatility in the market. Then there's options trading that uh, even more so actually adds to the volatility of the market. Um, and again, both of those practices are, are not something that we've engaged in. Um, also for the reasons that like we don't, you know, volatility by definition equals uh, risk, right? And so we think that a lot of the deliberation, a lot of those tools have definitely um, put the markets into a place where they are, they are much more volatile. I don't think it's the only factor playing in, if I'm being honest, but I definitely think it, it, is, it is an accelerant um, to some degree. But I think the micro investors have maybe less to do with that than actually some of the retail investors that do have margin, that do have options trading. And that, um, I think the, the sort of fractional share investors um, add relatively much less in comparison to the volatility. Okay, very cool. Uh, let's see, I noticed that Public has uh, co-CEOs. And uh, can you talk about how that arrangement came about and why it works for the two of you? Because that's that's not atypical. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, look, the funny thing is, um, again, the, we took a very first principles approach to this, I think, of like, um, you know, historically, we get that there's like one CEO and that's how most kind of companies work, um, especially stateside. I think in, in Europe, you've seen a little bit more of the co-CEO thing historically um, play out. But at the end of the day, we are operating, like I said, in a space where a lot of the decisions like can't just be not checking things with the regulators or even with our internal compliance teams, et cetera. And so if you think like we turn it around, like what is actually the benefit of having one CEO? Right? The benefit tends to be that like, okay, if you want to have a more dictator style kind of leadership culture within your company, then you can move really fast, et cetera. That's, not, that's never anything that we've really strived to, to actually do. 
um, because we you just can't really have that, right? I can't like go in and completely just overrule my chief compliance officer. That that's not how this industry kind of works. And so a lot of it is really just dialogue. And then when you looked at what the benefit of being co-CEOs uh, and that structure actually means, it it means a lot of different things. So for instance, um, we are where a lot of companies sort of that scale very quickly um, end up struggling is when they have to hire the first kind of C levels. I think uh, we've brought on a COO and a CFO recently, um, but you know we have not brought on a chief growth officer or a CMO because that's sort of what life uh, my co-CEO uh, focuses on. We have not brought on a chief product officer because that's what I kind of focus on. And so I think you're able to scale the company in a little bit of a different way versus sort of you get to that point where you waste, you know, you have your product market fit, you raise that round, and then boom, you got to add five C levels in the span of six months. That's really tough culturally. Everybody's coming with their own kind of leadership styles. That's like that. That's a really different problem to navigate. And I think we've been able to at least um, cut that problem in half and and basically phase it out a little bit more. Right? There might be a day where, where I end up hiring a, a chief product officer to sort of replace myself for the role that I play within product. But I'm able to put that off a little bit more, which then allows me to focus my energy on ensuring that that that, that our CFO and our CRO are probably not just onboarded, but probably integrated into the company as well. Um, and so I think there are actually some distinct advantages also being able to share that like CEO responsibility. It's a massive one, right? Let's be honest. And so I think it, it often puts CEOs at the place where they're like, oh, I, all I have time for is fly around, maybe not in the last 15 months, but like historically CEOs, like they fly around for conferences and speaking gigs and, you know, they do basically just fundraising and press and whatnot. And if that's all you do, you quickly become a little bit distant from the company. And then actually you put yourself, it, it might adversely affect yourself as far as your ability to sort of have temperature on your customers and your company and your core people in the business, et cetera. Um, and so again, I think re- sort of sharing the CEO workload helps us stay more connected to what's actually going on in the company, which I think at this point in the company's life is incredibly uh, beneficial overall. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I think what ends up happening, you just happen to make it formal, but I know with my company that I started in 95, me and my co-founder, although he had the CEO and chairman of the board title, I had the president chief operating officer title. We literally were co-CEOs you know, we met regularly, distribute everything you talked about, we operated that way. And I, and I think a lot of uh, early stage companies operate the same way, although they may not have yeah. the, the title nomenclature yeah. like, like you've talked exactly. about. Exactly, so. and I, I think it also helps like when we come out, uh, me and, and Life, my co-CEO, when we come out, we make a decision implicitly everyone in the company knows that we've talked about this. This is very thought through. This is not a rushed thing. And this is something that we, we both agree on. And, and again, that is a dynamic that, that you can't necessarily have as a, as a sort of, um, you know, sole CEO, if you will. Yeah, no, I think that's super, super smart. Uh, let's see. Another question has come in beyond your work at public. Uh, you're also an active angel investor. Can you talk about the sorts of early stage ventures um, that you get really excited about? Um, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think, um, I think, I think actually th- there's a lot of different kind of um, sort of takes on this. And um, I think angel investing is really um, helpful because it helps you just understand how the world works a lot better. If you're a founder and all you ever do is kind of raise capital, it, it, it really is very, very good to be on the other side of the table for once and actually really understand like you put yourself quite literally in, in the shoes of an investor. And I think we're living in a time where a lot more people are angel investing, right? With the rise of things like SPVs and AngelList and other kind of 
things, a lot more people are able to um, to participate in in sort of investing in the private markets. Um, the things I look for are have a wide sort of degree of variety. Obviously, um, there are many things around fintech that kind of come my way, but I do focus a lot of other things. Well, I used to be a gamer, so I think the gaming industry generally is quite interesting. I think the esports industry is quite interesting. And I'm probably also just a sucker for anything that's really great product design, if I'm being honest, then that call it an, an, an occupational hazard. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I, I'm also quite passionate about like, you know, as, as you know, uh, cheesy it might sound, but like things that, 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 you know, do help progress the world and, and make a little bit of a better place, right? So there are some things around climate change, I think are interesting. Um, especially back in, in in Europe, there's a bunch of stuff um, in and around that, and I think um, yeah. So it's a very wide degree of things, and at the end of the day, um, like most people, you look at the people, especially at the angel stage, because there's not many other data points to really consider. Like maybe there's a product, right? To my point, but um, but that's really your your main data point at, at that early stage of the investing cycle. Yeah, you saw like a couple other great rock stars. Most recently, had Howie Lou from Airtable on, and uh, he's fanatical about product design and look and feel. You know, I spent some time working with Elon, maniacal about look and feel and product design. So I think for all those uh, wannabe entrepreneurs out there, spending the time getting that product right um, is just a lot of hard work. And that I think yeah. you're, I think you're right. I think that's one of the most important things to look for as you're evaluating you know, new opportunities. Hundred percent. I actually think, and and maybe this is a little bit contrary to what most people talk about, but. You know, a lot of people say that like, oh, design's now been democratized. You can hire designers everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. That there may be some truth to that, obviously. But you know, most products that I like open on my phone or on the web are still not magical products. And so there is still a massive advantage, like in really putting the time and energy and work into building something truly magical. Now, to do that, you really need to go the extra mile truly, right? Like not just the extra 20%, but you really need to sometimes obsess about things that you're like, wait, but Reid Hoffman once said that like, if you're not embarrassed by your first version, you're too late. And like, I think that was a quote for a different time, if I'm being honest. I think um, I think now you really, um, you will never regret, you know, putting time into truly obsessing over, um, you know, the first mile of your product, uh, like which Scott Belsky talks a lot about, right? But also just like the general kind of flywheels within the product, how the product really works, how it sort of, um, how it how it delivers kind of this like magical value. And and I think that's, that that's really the, that's the sort of, that's the first thing you think about when you come with something new and it's the ultimate kind of test as well. And so it's, it kind of starts and ends with that. Yeah, I, I think you're right, because you only, you know, that market entry, that first glimpse, that, that lasts forever, right? And you only have one one shot to do that. And you create a massive exactly. impression uh, no matter what. And I think the term, I don't like the word MVP, minimum viable product. I like the term more uh, MAP, um, minimum awesome product, right? So I, I think there's a, there has been a, a significant shift over the last yep. several years around that concept. So uh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that. I think internally, we actually call it... Uh, um, yeah, we, we, we have various degrees of that. So like MVPs are only something that we demo internally for the team. We never obviously put those out. Ours is like minimum, I think it's marketable kind of product, right? It's like, hey, what do we, with our brand that we care a lot about with our ethos, what do we feel good about putting out into the market, right? Out in, out in the hands of our customers. And that bar is obviously way higher than than just rolling out an MVP. Yeah, yeah, it is. So we time for maybe one or two more questions. This next one, 
It's kind of similar to the first question. You got some folks kind of pushing on, you know, uh, all sides of, of your uh, of your business and your brand. And the question is, do you worry that building uh, beautiful and easy investing apps can and in of itself serve to mask the seriousness of investing? Will the social features on public.com serve to heighten the irrational exuberance and madness of crowds so famously associated with markets? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think it's something that we've, uh, so that is the thing that we obsessed about in the beginning, right? It's like, how do we, I think all the communities that have ever existed around this stuff have probably been in that camp of like playing more off of like, you know, FOMO and, 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 and like getting people to kind of make irrational decisions. And I think the hardest thing that we did is really focusing on building a community where that's not the case. Now, the way we did that, though, was also like we did not go out to all the stock trading communities. And like, like again, conventional knowledge tells you, like, find your cheapest, lowest hanging fruit users that care most about this. We did the opposite of that. We went to female leadership communities. We went to creative communities that never heard about like, like sort of everybody knows the stock market, but like they had no idea how everything with that kind of worked. And that was a big gamble, frankly, because it could have been like, oh, shit, they just don't care about this. But um, but but the opposite happened. And then I think that really helped create this culture within the community, which is much more about building your financial literacy. It's much more about so to like 90% of people on public actually make their first investment on public, right? And so it's 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 something where you're really just you're on a journey with people that in many places are a little bit in the same place as you. Obviously, we have a number of creators on the app that tend to be much more kind of knowledgeable and, and really more experts within certain kind of companies or sectors or themes or whatever. Um, but, but, you know, there's a lot of power in building community where people are, have a shared kind of interest in something. And we always say we want the, com the community to be collaborative, not competitive. Um, that's kind of one of the, our, our core principles there. Um, and so at every turn, I think we've just optimized for how do we not make this sort of the, like, we actually don't talk about ourselves as a trading app, even we see ourselves much more as an investing thing because it's not about speculation. I think. Over ninety percent of our communities are long-term investors, um, and so that's that's I think been the been probably the biggest thing of like yeah in the beginning when we started I'm sure that a lot of people didn't think that we could really pull that off because it's like nah social and something with the stock market is is all ever gonna be speculation and stuff and I think um, you know we've we've proved that the opposite can actually um, happen as well where people just participate in the community in order to in order to learn from others in order to learn together with others. Many times you learn something much better when you're trying to explain it to another person. So it's really just trying to create conversations and dialogue around all these kinds of concepts um, to, um, to make people better investors in the end. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.